Good morning. It's a joy for me to be here with you this morning to celebrate and worship, and particularly to celebrate during this season of justice. I bring you greetings from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, where we have our main campus, and in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we have a weekend campus. If you are ever able to find yourselves in Richmond or in Charlotte, I'd invite you to stop by and visit us to walk around and see our campus. Uh, we have one building in Charlotte, uh, but multiple ones in Richmond. Please know that uh, you are always welcome. We're going to be talking about welcome at the table, and we certainly, um, there at Union Seminary, want you to know that you're welcome to visit us anytime that you're in our area. I have been working um, a good bit, um, as Molly told you, um, as a New Testament scholar, and one of the things I've been working on as of late is the work of the supper meal and what the meal means for us as we move into the deeper into the 21st century. So as I come to you today, I want to share with you a little of the reflections I'm having as I think more and more about what this meal means and how we might be challenged more and more by this meal. And as I talk in the education time, I want to talk about a community that actually looks at this meal, and they suggest that we in North America, well, we in the first world, don't celebrate the meal any longer. And why they say that, I'll hold that as a hook to hopefully have you come and listen to what I'll have to say and share from that community in the time of education. As we think together, let us listen as we move to Paul's words about this meal. We find his words in the first letter he writes to the church at Corinth, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 11. Let us listen for God's word to us. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you is genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I will not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you have become weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instruction when I come. The word of the Lord. Ever sat in an awkward situation at a breakfast, lunch, or dinner table? Where after you pray aloud to God that everybody enjoy their food, you pray silently, please God, don't let them chew each other up. You're praying that Uncle Rob keeps his political leanings to himself. Or that Aunt Sally doesn't antagonize Aunt Ruth. Or that your husband doesn't eat the salad with the dinner fork and then loudly proclaim, Hey, look at this. I'm eating my salad with my dinner fork. <laughs> Ever spend hours and hours preparing a meal, sweating over the dining room decor, getting everything perfect only to have little Billy announce just as everybody was gobbling up the delicious food that he thought it was so funny when he saw the dog licking the turkey when nobody else was in the room. <laughs> Whose fault is that? Why did you have to say that? What do you mean? Sometimes the food on the table is the last thing on anybody's mind when families and friends gather around the table. In fact, the dinner table is such a legendary site of domestic dysfunction that there are all sorts of manuals and books and internet articles on measures that may be taken to avoid dinner table fights. Avoid pressuring or forcing the children to eat. Too bad that didn't come out 55 years ago when I was sitting at my mom's dinner table. Model the habits you want children to develop. Children, the article says, do not automatically know how to eat like adults. Well, after some of what I've seen adults do at meals, that may be a blessing. <laughs> Create a relaxed atmosphere for mealtimes. Yeah, try that at Thanksgiving when family members from different political parties and different faith traditions and different generations collide at the same table that you spent the last two days preparing. Lay out clear expectations for acceptable mealtime behavior. Maybe it might be helpful to have like a little pamphlet to hand out as folks come to the dinner table. List of food items on one side, list of what you can and cannot say on the other side. One author just concedes that no matter what you do, you just have to realize that there is just something about being at a table for a meal that will sooner or later bring about as much trouble and indigestion as food. She thinks the dinner table, the piece of furniture itself, is actually demon-possessed. Here's what she writes. The dinner table begs for those arguments and fights. You all thought it was an inanimate object, didn't you? Well, you are wrong. Paul knows. He writes to the Corinthians that he has heard that when they come together as a church, particularly at the time of the meal in the church, that there are divisions among them. And no matter how he'd rather not believe it, he believes it. He knows that humans, where humans are concerned, our nature always influences and distorts our faith. Those who follow God believing this way, and those who follow God believing that way are bound to have problems. 
we all tend to think that not just what I believe is the right faith thing to believe, but the way I believe it is the right faith way to believe it. This is what has happened in Corinth. Everybody claims to be following the same God, and yet still there are divisions. And those divisions, those disruptions, those disagreements, those debacles are most evident at the place where their oneness should be most evident, the table. Instead of the meal that they share to remember the Lord's last meal bringing them together, it tears them apart. So it cannot be the Lord's Supper that they are eating. In his commentary on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Robert Nash shares some helpful context. In the earliest practice of the church, the Lord's Supper was observed in the context of a meal that was modeled after the the Passover meal. It would have included before the meal a common cup of wine, entree, and a second common cup. If the Passover was the model followed, then the Passover liturgy would have preceded the second cup. The breaking of the bread would have signaled the beginning of the dinner, and the cup of blessing would have come at the conclusion. The event was both a full meal and a worship ritual. As with potluck suppers in churches today, each person brought his or her own food. Ideally, once the food was in the church, it became common property. Now, my wife makes really great cakes. I think it might look unseemly, though, if she baked a great cake for a church potluck meal and I took the cake off the common table and put it on my particular table and refused to let anybody else eat a slice of it. Talk about starting a food fight. But this is precisely what was happening in Corinth. Nash goes on to say, the persons of means were eating everything that they brought themselves. Those of lesser means, more meager fare, had hardly anything at all. In his commentary on the letter, Richard Hayes agrees, when the church gathers for the communal meal, some of the Christians who have greater resources are feasting on their own food and wine, while others who have nothing are going hungry. As a result, Paul declares, contrary to what they may suppose, what they are eating is not, in fact, the Lord's Supper. It's just their own private meal. If you have, Paul is saying, you must share what you have even as Jesus shared all that he had of himself with us. Whether that is a meal or whether that is land and geography, whether that is politics and society, hear what he is saying. If you have, you must share what you have. Even as Jesus shared all that he had of himself with us. Jesus did not hold back and keep his divinity secure to himself. His special relationship with God only to himself. His power to himself. His status to himself. He broke it up and he spread it out. He took the risk of spreading it out upon all of humankind. So... Should we use what we have in service of and sharing with those who have less than what we have? The answer I think Paul is saying is yes, especially in the context of a believing community celebrating the Lord's meal. Why didn't the Corinthians see this behavior of eating their own food a problem? Hayes is helpful. He writes, We must bear in mind that the Christian gatherings were held in private homes, not in large public spaces like this one. Archaeological study of Roman houses from this period has shown that the dining room of a typical villa could accommodate only nine people 
who would recline at table for the meal. Other guests would have to sit or stand in the atrium, which might have provided space for another 30 or 40 people. Imagine a very small sanctuary where some Christians would gather at the meal together and everybody else would have to be out in the narthex. So the house of the house church belongs to one of the wealthier members of the community. His higher status friends were no doubt the ones in the dining room sitting at the table, reclining at the table. Furthermore, according to Hayes, under such conditions, it was not at all unusual for the higher status guests in the dining room to be served better food and better wine than the other guests, just as first-class passengers on an airline receive much better food and service than others on the same plane. I guess Hayes is saying that in this Corinthian Christian setting, you had first-class Christians, you had economy-class Christians, and maybe even steerage-class Christians. The first-class Christians thought that the economy-class Christians crammed out there in the narthex, getting little or no food, should have been happy just to be there inside this grand house where they did not otherwise belong, with these grand people with whom they otherwise did not belong, for worship. And Paul isn't having any of it. As Hayes observes, Paul regards such practices, however normal and respectable Roman culture, as an outrage. He does not deny the right of the more prosperous Christians to eat and drink however they like in their own homes, but he insists that the church's common meal should symbolize the unity of the community through equitable sharing of food at the meal. And this is where Paul reminds them of the meal by recounting the tradition of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. The meal was where Jesus gave of himself, did not keep his divinity or power to himself, but shared it all with us. A message we do well to remember in the times in which we find ourselves today. The meaning of the meal comes alive in this context. The context of not just living with Christ, but living with each other. Not just celebrating how much Christ gave to us, but sharing so much with each other that the celebration anticipated in the future kingdom of God is prefigured right now in the present in the community of believers. Imagine that. We, when we gather here right now as we celebrate the meal, we are not just doing what we do in the present. We are prefiguring what we will all do in the future in God's reign. That's what he's telling them. But none of this was happening. A meal designed to show one community in Christ instead was doing just the opposite. The divisions in the world, rich and poor, immigrant and native, all of a sudden are now reflected at the dinner table of the Lord. The church in this regard looks just like the world. Instead of providing an alternative view of community, the church just refocuses the world's view through a Christian lens. The church takes what is broken and instead of fixing it with the meal at the table sanctifies it. Even in this meal that commemorates Jesus giving everything he had for God's people, the church in Corinth acts like people having more keeping what they have rather than sharing what they have is not only how people live, but it's how God wants people to live. So when Paul says in verse 17 that the community comes together, he is not just describing what they think they are doing. He is chastising what they really are doing. When they come together as a church, they do not come together in Christ. 
Rather, their coming together makes things worse because their divisions are brought to life for everybody to see. Now, Paul could probably write the same opening sentence to many churches and many denominations in our own time. He is essentially asking, how can you proclaim to be the church when the very essence of church is gathering together as one body and yet things have become so distorted that when churches gather, they gather in pieces. In which Christian section are you? First class, economy, steerage. And what do you do in your section to make life better for people in the other section? You can be in steerage and change the lives of people in first class, but it's harder because you have fewer resources. If you're in first class or even economy, you have some means. Paul is concerned with what his people are doing with those means. He is particularly concerned when they come together for the meal. The broken bread is meant to signify a unified church, but the torn apart church makes mockery of that brokenness. Is he suggesting that it is better for them not to be a church at all than to be this mockery of a church? That would be a powerful suggestion indeed. Do we do more harm to our identity and the cause of God's inbreaking kingdom when we gather as a church around the meal? Paul is asking the Corinthians this powerful question. It is in light of this context that Paul says in verse 27 that whoever eats the Lord's Supper unworthily does so in a way that is more destructive than constructive, that brings judgment upon the church rather than salvation. These are challenging words, almost frightening words, especially since the Corinthians and we share this Lord's meal on such a regular basis. Think about the meal being a judgment rather than a blessing. Monthly. Weekly daily, religiously. Now, I'll admit it, I grew up actually afraid of the Lord's Supper, scared to death rather than invited to life. I had understood that if you weren't perfectly righteous, if you were angry with anybody, if anybody was angry with you, if you had done something wrong or refused to do something right, if you'd squabble with your brothers over that last piece of cake, then you could not partake of the meal because then the meal would judge you in your sins. If I walked up to the table a sinner, I was walking up there to judgment. Of course, I now know that the table is precisely there for us sinners. Paul is convinced of that, but he's not talking about the grace that comes from the table here. He's talking about the brokenness that we bring to the table. As Hayes nicely concludes in his commentary, by mistreating other members of the church, the Corinthians repeat the sort of sin that made the death of Christ inevitable. They place themselves among those who are responsible for the crucifixion and not among those who by faith receive the fruit of the crucifixion. So what does Paul want from us? Again, listen to Hayes. Paul is calling the more affluent Corinthians not merely to preserve a public appearance of unity in the celebration of the supper, but actually to break down the barriers of social status and to receive the poor members as guests in their homes, sharing their food with those who have none. We might hear that today in a different way as Christians. Paul is calling the more 
comfortable Christians, not merely to preserve a public appearance of unity and the celebration of church and the supper, but actually to break down the barriers of race, to break down the barriers of gender discrimination, to break down the barriers of nativism, to receive those who are also God's people as guests in their home sharing their food with those who have none, sharing their place with those who have none. The Corinthians can eat what they want as lavishly as they want when they are eating privately for themselves, but when in Christian community, Paul says they cannot eat the meal of the community their way without doing harm to themselves and to their community. There is such complexity to this meal. It is so much more than a meal of remembrance. It is a meal to celebrate a man whose righteous justice actions for God and God's people provoke the most unrighteous, unjust of responses from people who wanted to bring his actions and his deed, his life, to a stop. It is a meal caught up in the gospel moments of transformational justice for people who receive no justice save that which came directly from God through Jesus. Consider the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark. Ask yourself, in what context does the meal appear in that gospel? The meal comes at the end, the climax of Jesus' ministry to give overall meaning to Jesus' ministry. Just look at the start of Jesus' ministry. My father told me once, when I was getting married, what his father had told him. I've since come to joke with my father about his advice or his father's advice because it, it doesn't really work. And yet there is a little bit of a truth to it, a truth to work with, and also a truth to work against. The saying was, start out like you can keep out. In other words, the way you start is the way you set the stage for expectations about how you're going to continue. Now that's all well and good to follow that advice if you're going to start from a high place. If you're going to start by being a partner, by being fully invested in all the elements of a marriage, from washing the dishes to raising the children to sharing the expenses and the income, then yes, start high so you can compel yourself to remain at that high place. Start out like you can keep out. The reverse was always the frightening thing. A person could say, well, I'm only going to start out by doing so much because if I do too much at the beginning, too much will be expected of me all the way through to the end. My mom was a teacher's age. She used to say that she started out on the first day with her students with strength because it's important to start out the way she intended to keep out. And so did Jesus. He started as a prophet of justice by challenging traditions and laws that he deemed were hurting rather than helping God's people, breaking rather than healing God's people. So right at the start of what could certainly be called a justice ministry in Mark's gospel, there are some signature moves of Jesus that set the tone for his entire ministry, for everything that follows. You're not supposed to touch lepers. He touches them. You're not supposed to claim to be able to forgive sin unless you're sanctioned by the temple. Unsanctioned, he forgives them. You're not supposed to cavort with tax collectors and prostitutes. He eats meals with them. You're not supposed to allow your followers to work on the Sabbath. He allows them. You're certainly not supposed to break Sabbath traditions by working yourself on the Sabbath. He breaks them. By the time this litany of illicit behavior is finished, Mark has gotten only so far as chapter 3, verse 6. At verse 6, the leaders are already so tired of Jesus' justice juggernaut that they take counsel with each other how to destroy him. 
The Lord's Supper is the climax of this juggernaut of justice ministry. No wonder Paul thinks they make a mockery of it by the way they eat it. Think now. What brings you to your table at your house? Or your table in a restaurant? Hunger. The smell. The reputation. Relationship. Conversation. They all bring me to the table. What brought Jesus to that table, to that last supper table? His outrageous hunger to put his people's needs before his people's laws. His unquenchable thirst to break rules if he thought the rules were breaking God's people. His avaricious appetite for representing the justice that God wanted to see in this world and his determination to live out that justice even when doing so angered the authorities and the people in power. Who brings or what brings the Corinthians to the table? Well, that's the rub, isn't it? They just come to eat. Paul looks into the future. But not his people. Paul's people look to the present. Paul's people are determined to start out like they can keep out in the present. So they start out low. That way they won't ever have to live high. They start out where they are and therefore only expect themselves to remain where they are in their world of social division. First class Christians in here. Economy class Christians over there. Steerage class Christians, well, way back there. They intend to keep out like they have started out. Paul is trying to get them to start out not where they are, but where God intends them to be. Paul has, through God's sending of God's Son, seen the future in his present. In God's future, heaven is like one great table of faith and justice where all are seated at the table for the feast. No one comes early. No one comes late. No one gets more. No one gets less. No one is more privileged. All are there in equal presence of each other and of God. That is the future. Paul wants to know why it cannot be the present. You can probably hear that I have a problem with this meal. That we eat it in our first class and economy class churches while people are literally starving in what has become the steerage places of our world. I have a problem with this meal. That we have all this long ritual and music to perform it, but have such short attention spans to live it. I have a problem with this meal. That we focus on Jesus' broken body and spilled blood without recognizing that our world is breaking his body and spilling his blood in the way we socially, economically, politically, religiously treat the least of these. I have a problem with this meal. That is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. I wonder, what do you think he would say to us? Amen.